Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Friday, February 10th. You know, on Fridays, we spend like the first half of the show talking about the news of the day and the news of the week. Well, something happened about an hour and a half ago. I didn't hear it mentioned uh, at the news. I'm sure it'll be up there uh, next hour. We shot another thingy down in the sky. It's not being described as a balloon. We are told it is much smaller than the Chinese balloon that we shot down over the Atlantic. Uh, This one was spotted... Uh, flying over the northeast corner of Alaska on its way to the Arctic. We scrambled a bunch of fighter jets. We saw it apparently for the first time last night. They looked at it. They looked at it. They got what information they could, and the decision was made this morning to take it out, take it down, get rid of it. And the fighter jets went back up, and they did just that. Uh, this uh, was announced by the White House literally like an hour and a half ago that this happened. Here's what we know. They're not calling it a balloon. They are specifically calling it an object. <laughs> it was an object. Uh, they're saying it was smaller than the balloon that was shot down. But, you know, that balloon was huge. It was 200 feet long. It was like three buses, weighed 2,000 pounds and had some steering mechanism to it. They don't believe this object had a steering mechanism. They're also saying they don't think it had a significant payload. But they felt it was a, quote, reasonable threat to civilian aviation. Like some some passenger jet might just run into it, I guess, is what they were saying. So they shut it down. Um, I'm sure we are in the process of going somewhere to collect the pieces. I don't believe this was shot down over water because, like I said, it crossed the northeast corner of Alaska and it's, it was on its way to the Arctic. So um, it sounds like this one, the pieces such as they are, will be over land, but not really populated land. So... <laughs> Here we go again. High altitude object. Now, the Chinese balloon was um, traveling at about 60,000 feet above land. This one was described as lower. I believe at one point he said it was somewhere around 40,000 feet. Uh, And... um, There really wasn't a lot more that they could say. They don't. They're not associating it with China. They have no idea at this point. At least uh, they're not willing to share if they have connected this um, object (laughs) to any country. And nobody's saying this also came from China. Nobody's saying that this object was spying. They're saying that. They flew some jets around it last night, took a look at it, and decided today that it was a threat to civilian aviation and shot it down. You know, now that we know these things are up there, I, I wonder if this is going to begin to be a weekly occurrence. But as far as I know, 
We shot down a Chinese balloon. Today we shot down an object that we are not associating with any particular country. But it was established that there is another Chinese balloon flying over Latin America. And uh, apparently there's a lot of these Chinese balloons flying around all different kinds of places. So we will, um, you know, as we get more information on this, we will share it with you. But right now they're calling it an object. It was probably at least 20,000 feet lower than the Chinese balloon. They're saying it had no, at least as far as they are telling us right now, it had no guidance mechanism and no significant payload. But they felt it was a threat to civilian aircraft. And um, I don't know exactly when it was downed, but the government made the announcement to tell us about it about an hour and a half ago. So there's your news of the day. Nobody's hurt. In the downing of it, nobody was, no casualties or injuries on the ground. Like I said, it, I believe it, from the way it sounds, they said it was headed to the Arctic. Because one reporter asked, well, why didn't you shoot it down over water? And he said, well, it wasn't going over water. You know, we found it over Alaska and it was headed to the Arctic. So it was either let it go or shoot it down. And we shot it down. Oh, and one more. Oh, like we needed another George Santos story to break this morning. In the Washington Post, headline, Amish country farmers say George Santos took puppies, left bad checks. There was a farmer in Pennsylvania that had some puppies. I believe they were golden retrievers. And uh, George Santos showed up and uh, there were like nine puppies. He said he wanted all of them. And he said, all, I promise you, I will do a wire transfer. Um, and the farmer said, you know, it just didn't feel right. It, it didn't feel, I don't know, there was something about the guy that just set off the farmer's radar. So instead of giving him all the puppies and waiting for a wire transfer, he uh, allowed George Santos to write a check for four puppies, four golden retriever puppies. George Santos drove away, and guess what? I know you you see where this is going. The check was bad. It bounced. The check bounced. So basically, George Santos st- went to a farm and stole four puppies. Uh, but the farmer did not just sit back and write it off to a bad experience, called the police. It took authorities, according to the Washington Post, two years to find George Santos because he had gone back home to New York, but he was charged with theft by deception. Theft by deception. Now it says that um, this was reported in a local paper, The Star, and the paper also later reported that the case was dismissed under a provision of Pennsylvania law that allows misdemeanor charges to be dropped when a prosecutor consents and, quote, satisfaction has been made to the aggrieved person. So essentially, when George Santos was caught, he went to the farmer and said, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I'll, I'm sorry. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I didn't know that check bounced. I'll pay you for those puppies. And he paid the farmer. So the farmer let it go. 
Um, but now, based on everything else that's being known about this guy, the farmer who still is requesting anonymity felt that this story needed to be told. And he's got the checks to prove it. I mean, this isn't just somebody making like an Amish farmer is going to suddenly make a random accusation against George Santos. Um, This guy. Oh, my God, this guy. I told you yesterday that there are a group of Democrats, a small group of Democrats who are putting forth a resolution to ask that he be expelled from Congress. But it takes a two-thirds vote in Congress to kick a sitting member out. And you know and I know that the only thing that's going to make the Republican Party cling to George Santos is a move by Democrats to kick him out, even though privately they may think he is, as Mitt Romney said, you don't belong here. So, yeah, George Santos add stealing puppies to his long list of frauds. Oh, my God. I really liked what Amanda Turcott from Salon.com said about George Santos. George Santos isn't an outlier. He is the culmination. He is the peak. He's the epitome of what MAGA is, what they are creating. He's not a flaw. It's not a flaw in the system. It is the system. So that's just happening today. We haven't even gotten to analyzing the State of the Union. We haven't talked about the mayoral forum that was on Channel 32 last night. We have so much to talk to to you and to each other about. 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. And remember, too, we are over the next uh, week or two until the election, we're going to be talking to mayoral candidates at 3.30 today. We are going to be talking with Paul Vallis. Got a lot. We've gotten some questions in. Also going to ask him about the TTW reporting that just broke that accuses him of not really living in the city of Chicago, but um, rather claiming a suburban house as his main residence. Uh, we will talk to him about that and all of the issues of the day. And I'm going to talk to you about all the issues of the day. So let's take a break and get to it right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. The Hal Sparks Radio Program. Steve Bannon declared Carrie Lake the official, undisputable governor of Arizona. So the right wing, for the record, are handing out participation trophies. Yeah, you're mayor, too. Nobody loses. You get a a little ribbon for playing the game. Hal Sparks, Saturdays from 11 to 1 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
We are talking, as we do every Friday, about the news of the day, the news of the week. Let's go to the phone lines. Our good friend Jim is calling in. Hey, Jim, how are you? Hi, Joan. This is what I call a good week for the Democrats. It reminds me of when I was younger, I had a long streak at the track December 18th. I knew it was going to end, but I don't know when it was going to end. Just point out a couple of things. The State of the Union was terrific. Then you go into the House where the Republicans are trying to prove the origin of COVID, some futile attempt at that. And the other one, Biden's laptop. And then Pence's house has been raided, I guess, this morning. And uh, Biden's shooting down balloons left and right, the lead balloon story. I mean, this has just been a great week for Democrats. I don't know how you <laughs> feel about it, but it, it's just been a terrific week. And I get kicked out of the Republican radio, uh, switching themselves to the pretzels. Anyway, you have a great show, Joe, and thank you. Thank you, Jim. And he is absolutely right. Not only has it been a great week, because as we talked about earlier, uh, Joe Biden, man, the State of the Union, I think, you know, I, we all, you know, we're, we care about politics. We're going to watch it. But we figured it would be sort of the typical Biden speech. Um, you know, he's not famous for being a particularly moving orator. Well, he really, really blew it out of the water. I mean, it was incredible. And yes, we, you know, these things used to be conducted with a modicum of dignity and respect. Whether you liked the president or not, whether you agreed with the president or not, you just sat there. Maybe you didn't clap, but you certainly didn't didn't heckle for God's sake you didn't heckle there was supposed to be some sort of decorum in this body well that's gone out the window for a very long time now and when he was heckled I swear it was as if President Biden had his hand on a battery terminal it just energized him you could see his whole face come alive I mean, you know, this guy has been a senator. He's been in tough negotiations. He's been in politics for decades. And that is something we got a glimpse of during the State of the Union. His ability to take confrontation and turn it into something that benefits him. Whew. Uh, a little bit later, if I have the chance, I'm going to replay the one clip where he got the Republicans to agree to leave Social Security alone, something that they had gone on the record repeatedly as saying they were going after. And oh, by the way, they are still going to go after it. But he got them to publicly commit to leaving it alone. So it looks like they'll have to push those plans back a little bit. But Jim's absolutely right. It hasn't just been a good week for democracy. It's been a good two years for democracy. I am, um, as you know, one of the accounts that I follow on social media is Politics Girl. And I love the way she breaks down complicated subjects and explains them clearly. Well, I don't have the time to bring you this whole thing because it runs like six, seven minutes but she basically did a post about the State of the Union, and for six, seven minutes, she catalogs all the things that Democrats have accomplished, all the things that they have done well, all the things they have done right. 
I have just a little segment of it that Lady B pulled off for me. I want to play it for you now. Listen to this. The state of our economy is strong. By any metric, the United States is doing incredibly well. We've added 12 million jobs, far and above what was lost during the pandemic. We have the lowest unemployment since 1969. The Democrats passed the CHIPS Act to bring manufacturing back to America, which has already brought billions of dollars in private investment to the U.S., We passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which lowered pharmaceutical costs for low-income Americans and seniors, and is the single biggest investment in the climate in our nation's history. The act will not only create good, high-paying jobs that don't require a college degree, but will use and respect existing infrastructure already set up for oil and gas to make sure we don't kill an industry we still need and respect as we make the transition to a cleaner, more sustainable future. Looking around the country, we're starting to see the success of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act with new bridges and roads and tunnels and internet coming to places it's never been before. We took care of our brave veterans who were injured in toxic burn pits, and we've come together to defend our allies in Europe as democracy stands against the threat of a rising autocracy. But we sit at an inflection point with a leader who believes in progress and possibility and that America's best days are ahead of it, but we have to make the right choices now. Joe Biden's bottom line for America is that he's got our back, that he is out here working to make sure our lives are better, from passing bills to stop us getting charged for rip-off junk fees to fighting for us to have affordable childcare and paid leave. I think we're so used to being cynical about government that it's hard to believe this guy's for real, that he really is fighting for things that will improve our lives, that he truly believes we can continue to invest in America without cutting Social Security or Medicare, that we can continue to reduce the deficit without cutting Social Security or Medicare, that we can have the things that we want and we need, the things that we deserve, if we have a government willing to fight for us and not just the donor class. And she goes on for like another four minutes. And it's it's awesome. It's great. I mean, sometimes when these things happen, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, you don't realize the totality of it. But follow her. She's on Instagram. She's on other social media sites. Politics Girl. I think she's on TikTok, too. But, of course, I don't have TikTok because I believe it's a Chinese uh, plant. <laughs> okay, that's my little nod to conspiracies. But I mean, it's incredible when you go through accomplishment by accomplishment by accomplishment. And then to top it all off with a State of the Union speech that takes the Republicans and defangs them. Just just awesome. Let's go to the phone lines. Bob from Indiana is joining us. Hey, Bobby. Hello, John. How are you? Oh, about fair today. Um, the reason I'm bothering you is a couple of things. Uh, that uh, uh, State of the Union, uh, I tell you, if, if that was Sleepy Joe, then the Republicans were comatose. Because <laughs> uh, he, uh, you know, he's a creature of Congress. Yep. But he also knows railroads. And I got to thinking, he put his knowledge together, combined it brilliantly. Because when he did that deal about Social Security, he just kept backing them up. 
and finally got them to jump onto that third rail of Social Security right in the section where the third rail transitions to overhead wire, and they reached <laughs> up and grabbed it, and yes. he fried it. He oh. fried it. He, he, they did seem to play it. right into his hands. He, oh, boy. I mean, it was brilliant. I, my, I was talking to my sister and brother-in-law. She says, they 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 were shouting at the TV at that and a bunch of other things and and, and just clapping and jumping up and down at that <laughs> whole uh, whole speech. So uh, yeah, it, it it was great. But I'll tell you another thing, and um, it got me to wondering. You know, everybody, uh, you know, or not everybody, but a lot of people, you know, oh, sleepy Joe. Well, he doesn't have the mojo anymore you know he can't he's not going to make it well that sure proved otherwise and i just wondered you know that that, uh, to me was like a a large rock in a calm pond and i'm wondering i got to wondering you know what other ripples could he come out of that and and i got to wondering and i was talking to my sister about this um, could that help affect the, uh, you know, the indictments of our wonderful ex-president and, and his gang? And um, because, you know, maybe they'll figure, well, he's going to be around and, you know, maybe we, maybe we really need to get on the ball with this. And then I heard today that they're subpoenaing uh, uh, Pence. And, and I just wonder if, if, you know, in some left-handed way, it'll help move a lot of things along. Yep. Well, something's got to give sooner or later. I mean, there are all these investigations. There are all these special prosecutors. There are attorney generals. There are district attorneys all looking into this. Here's my prediction, Bobby. I think once one of them breaks through and actually brings charges against Donald Trump, I think I think the dam will burst. And then in the following months, we'll see other charges in another state, other charges coming out of the DOJ. I I think that once it happens, it's going to be a floodgate. But, you know, it hasn't happened yet, and we can only hope. Well, even if it's not Trump, when they when they when they indict the first suit instead of the foot soldiers, yeah, exactly. I'm so tired of that. The underlings going to jail and the and the ringleaders walking scot free. Bobby, we've run over our time. We've we've got to take a break. But thank you, my friend, for the call. Always appreciate talking to you from Indiana. We're going to take that break. We're going to be back with more calls and more really interesting sound right after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away. 773-763-9278. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. By the way, at the top of the show, I was telling you about the object 
that our fighter jets shot down after it crossed Alaska on the way to the Arctic. An object, that's what they're calling it, not a balloon, an object much smaller than the Chinese spy balloon, uh, flying a little bit lower. Uh, They said they shot it down because they believed it posed a threat to civilian aviation. It was uh, first detected last night. Our jets flew by it trying to gather intel, and the decision was made this morning to shoot it down. I told you that it was... um, Let's see. It was about oh, it was about an hour and a half before I took to the airwaves that the government announced this. They are now saying that the Pentagon is now saying that it it was roughly twelve forty five Chicago time when the item object thingy was shot down. We're not associating it with any country. They say it didn't seem to have any kind of steering mechanism, um, but. It was felt that it was better to get rid of it, I guess. And uh, while it was flying over our territory and our waters, we downed it. 12.45 Chicago time this afternoon. I'm sure at the top of the hour, the Associated Press will have a lot to say about this breaking story. We are doing what we do every Friday, talking about the news of the day, (laughs) the news of the week, the news of the year. Let's go back to the phone lines. Roosevelt, our good friend Roosevelt is calling in. Hey, Roosevelt, how are you? Thank you for taking my call, Joan. Have a nice weekend. Uh, you too. You know what? I, I I thought a lot about this, and nobody's ever said this, but it you know it goes with the territory if it's the if the subject is Trump. How is it possible from the other end, from the Republican conservative end? How is it possible that a man with forty or more years of experience in government and serving the people? How is it possible that everything that he does is wrong in their eyes and everything that Trump does, which he never, I don't think he ever had, you know, any kind of, uh, matter of fact, uh, correcting myself, I don't think he ever, not even a dog catcher. So he he was never involved in in politics until it was profitable for him. But But I said this. When he was elected, because my mother almost had a heart attack when he when he was elected president. I said, you know what? And I said it right after he was, you know, sworn in. I said, this thing about him being the president is the worst mistake he could ever make because yeah. everything's going to come out about him. Yeah. Long and behold. And I've often said this on your show, and I'm patting myself on the back, and I'm not ashamed of it. Also, I've often said that karma Notice, everything that he, he points his finger at, it comes back at him. You know, look at this thing with the, with the, the fact that the, uh, the laptop and all this stuff of Hunter Biden and, and uh, Twitter and Elon, uh, Elon Musk and all this stuff. And look what happened. Look, look, what, look what happened. It, it, it was completely the opposite of what they claim that uh, Biden is controlling the media, that that he told, you know, all, all these side uh, theories, conspiracy theories, but it often comes back towards them. Now, I have a question for you. You mentioned just about everything except I believe there's a, that the lady that uh, has a, the dress where she she was, uh, she accused him of uh, rape or something. Eugene Carroll. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Isn't that coming up in April? And, this is, and isn't that going forward? 
And, it and is going about- forward. I, it's now um, two cases. E. Jean Carroll originally filed suit against him for defamation because the statute of limitations on any sex crime had expired. But she said he raped her. He called her a liar publicly, and she was suing him for calling him a liar. And then New York passed this law that said, okay, for like the next year, we're going to open up a window. If you were a victim of a sex crime and you didn't file charges during the, the, the legally allowed time, we're giving you, we're going to have one year where you can go back and revisit those cases. And so she now has charged him with rape. So he, she is going after him on two fronts now. Yeah, and, and what about uh, Michael Cohen? What's going on with that? Mm. Well, you know, he has been he's been on cable news a lot, but he's been well, he's been kind of coy because he says, as you guys well know, when you talk to the government, you're not allowed to repeat those conversations. He has been called in repeatedly to give more information and more testimony. And it is, remember when he was convicted in the documents, um, there was some vague reference to cons- co-conspirator one or something like that. And he's always said, you know, that's Donald Trump. You know, you know, if you, if you convicted me and you said I was working with this co-conspirator, then why aren't you, you know, going ag- off after the co-conspirator? So that may be what is happening there. But he has been on cable news talking about the fact that he has been repeatedly called back to government lawyers' offices to continue to give them more information. So who knows? Who knows? Yeah, and, uh, you know, out of all the people he's backstabbed, people that were close to him and worked for him, I think Michael Cohen, I, I see it in his face every time he's, uh, you know, in, on TV or or he's doing an interview. Uh, I see the anger in him. I see the vengeance in him. He wants to get back at him so bad. I mean, this is the way I see it. He's, he's, he's very, very uh, uh, furious and angry o- over what Trump did to him as far as him paying the price for the hundred was one hundred thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, well, my God, you know, who wouldn't be? You know, there's this person you've worshipped, you've given all your loyalty to, and then you discover that this person has thrown you under the bus and that you end up facing criminal charges, you end up doing jail time, and this person goes scot-free. Yeah, I think that that would, uh, I think that would bother me, too. Yeah, but what about that other guy that just got sentenced for, what, five, six months? He he never... uh turned in Trump. He never, uh, he, he, he continued to be loyal to him. So he, he's facing uh, the music as far as uh, going to jail also. What's the guy's name? Uh, I, I can't remember, but I do know there's also a female lawyer. Um, oh, really? Yeah. One of, one of his lawyers, it's not the one who accepted the uh, subpoena at Mar-a-Lago. It's, it's not Rob. This woman is, um, I think she's Irani. I mean, she's an American, Irani American, and uh, she's been one of Trump's lawyers, and she was the the suit that he brought that was just dismissed because the judge said this is obvious. This is just a suit being brought for revenge. It has no merit. Not only am I going to dismiss it, but I am going to make you the lawyer and Donald Trump 
pay like $130,000 in fines and punishment because you are basically use, trying to use the legal system to exact revenge. Uh, and there was another case that she was fighting on behalf of Trump that she very quickly dropped away from. So, yeah, it's not just his his the people involved with him in business. You know, the lawyers who've been defending him, some of them are facing disbarment procedures. Some of them, like this woman, she's facing a six-figure fine for bringing a frivolous lawsuit that was clearly clearly done, according to the judge, for no other reason than retaliation. So, you know, every everybody that works with him is damaged by him and why he keeps luring people into his sphere of influence I just don't know. I just don't know at all. I don't get how somebody can say, well, yeah, all those other people went to jail, but that won't happen to me. Hello? <laughs> and these are supposed to be smart people, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I, as far as I can I finish with this is uh, the fact that there's so much stuff that he's done. And it, and I think that's a part of his strategy. I don't know if it's intentional or whatever. He's just a habitual con man. Yes, he is. He is. He's a con man. He's a mob boss. That's that's how he operates. So, you know, um, anybody who goes to work for him, if they can't see that, then they're clearly not as bright as one would think. Anyway, uh, Roosevelt, thank you so much for the call. I appreciate it. We have a lot of callers we want to get to. So let's take a quick break and uh, start it up right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820. It's Friday. Every Friday, we open up the phone lines. We talk about the news of the day. Let's go back to the phone lines. Paul is calling in from Seattle, Washington. Hello, Paul. How are you? Happy Friday, Joan. Happy Friday to you. Well... I, like you, I am really glad that President Biden showed the nation what he's made of. Yep. Uh, that he's not any kind of demented old man, and he's as sharp as they come. And when people say, "What's he done in forty-five years in government?" Well, he just showed you. He yep. just showed you what he can do, and he hit. I don't think he left anything out, especially when it comes to the economy. There's nothing that I. I mean, I was, I was kind of mouthing, "Say this, say that," and then he would say it. <laughs> and when he got to the when he got got to the part about the Social Security um, and the booing, and he, you know he he owned him on that one. But did you notice that right after that? I mean, because the overall point was we're not going to be bullied to uh, make cuts in Social Security, uh, you know, to to make deals on that for you to raise the debt limit, and he went. The next thing that they all stood up and said, boo, boo, liar, liar, house on fire, as he said. How come you didn't say pants on fire? That's the way I always say <laughs> um, The He was when he said that Donald Trump racked up 25 percent of the national debt. And he did. And yeah. he said, no, those are facts. You just have to look them up. 
I wish you would have done this because what was the two things that were in my mind, the two facts that came together, and maybe, you know, it it would have been either piling on or too complicated for uh, them, but the $8 trillion that Donald Trump racked up in reckless federal spending and tax cuts for uh, the corporations and the richest 1%, that $8 trillion is two-thirds of all of the Social Security payments that have been made, the $12 trillion in, in, in Social Security payments that have made been made to over 500 million Americans since 1940. Half a billion Americans have received Social Security payments for generations, including our great-grandparents, our grandparents, our parents, and now us have received Social Security, and Donald Trump's wild, reckless spending of $8 trillion is two-thirds of $12 trillion, which is the total amount that Social Security has paid out. And what that means is that, I mean, this, I love comparisons. I like to just kind of put things together. Donald Trump, in four years, basically blew on the nation's credit card 55 years worth of Social Security payments. Yeah. And, you know, we don't hear a word. One of the things you make an important point, and I want to I want to pound this home so that everybody in the audience hears about it. You know, the Republicans are like, oh, Joe Biden's spending all this money. Oh, it's irresponsible. We can't raise the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling was raised multiple times under Donald Trump. And because Democrats know it's an important thing to do, they they didn't make a fuss about it. They didn't hold the government hostage. They did it because it needed to be done. And Donald Trump ran up trillions of dollars in new debt. So it it's just it just drives me crazy that all of us, you know, short attention span people that we are all of a sudden are listening to, you know, we're listening to these Republican talking points and going, hmm, I don't know. They make a lot of sense, but they don't. No, and the, the, the national debt in, in brief here is more than 98 percent of our national debt has been racked up since Ronald Reagan took office, more than 98% of our 32 trillion. And, you know, it was only eight, I believe it, $800 billion when Jimmy Carter left office. That was our national debt for 190 years as a, as a nation. We just passed a defense budget of $858 billion. We, yeah. Our defense budget this year was more than the national debt was when Jimmy Carter took office. Ronald Reagan tripled the national debt. George, and remember Lloyd Benson said to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Dan Quayle, I can give you the illusion of wealth. Just give me a credit card. And then George H.W. Bush came along, quadrupled the national debt. Bill Clinton had a balanced budget. George W. Bush put $6 trillion off the, off the uh, books for two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Barack Obama cut deficit spending faster than any other president. Remember, because of sequester, he said, give me a budget or give me 10% cuts across the board. And John Boehner said, okay, there's the 10% cuts across the board. That's why he didn't like it, but he cut deficit spending faster than any other president. And now Joe Biden has cut $1.7 trillion in deficit spending in two years. And don't tell me that the, the Republicans keep saying, we're the fiscally responsible party. B.S. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a joke. And liberals, they're the borrowing binge party. Yep, that you hit the nail on the head. That is exactly what they are. And we can't 
We can't forget about that. We can't let people forget about that. You know, um, we do have a short attention span. We tend to forget what came before. But this is ridiculous. You know, they were uh, behaved financially irresponsibly during Donald Trump. And now Joe Biden is getting this. Oh, but look at you. Look at all the damage you're doing. Yes. Well, it's not anywhere near what happened under you now, is it? Is it? And we can't let we can't let people forget that. Paul, thank you so much. Uh, for the call in today. Um, Lady B, let's go back to the phone lines. Ron is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Ron, how are you? Oh, very good. Um, Some of the uh, classified documents found uh, in uh, President Biden's garage and house, they date back from 1974. Do we really need a congressional investigation for this, you know? Why don't we just reinvestigate the Watergate scandal? You know, <laughs> it's a waste of time. And also, in his uh, State of the Union address, uh, President Biden mentioned that uh, many uh, Fortune 500 companies are not paying any taxes, and the uh, rebuttal from the right wing was, "This is not against the law." Well, it's not against the law for oil and gas companies to have record profits while. Uh, or 65 million people are living paycheck to paycheck. No, it's not. Uh, it's not against the law, and it and clearly they took advantage of that to put uh, exactly that sort of uh, program in place. It's just you know when during World War II they passed a lot of laws to prevent companies from profiteering. Oh, you need metal for weapons? Well, we've got a bunch of metal. Gosh, you know, it costs a lot more than it used to cost, though. It used to be five cents a pound. Now it's five dollars a pound, government. I hope you don't mind. You know, they specifically passed laws to prevent people from doing that and to hold them responsible if they tried to do that. There were threats that President Biden might try to do the same thing. Um, you know, when, you know, when we first started having inflation and, and suddenly, you know, gas prices were going crazy and all these other prices were going crazy. And now we discovered that a lot of these companies are in their yearly filings showing us that they have had record profits, record through the roof profits. Hmm. Double, right? I wish I can send you a Valentine, but my wife would kill me. So <laughs> well, it. you just you just gave me one over the phone, and I, I thank you for that, Ron. Okay, thank you. Bye. Take care. Have a great weekend. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Eduardo is calling in from the southwest side. Hey, Eduardo, you're on. What would you like to talk about today? Yeah, Joan, I, well, I stepped away from my computer, but I had the uh, article on Daily Mail. Uh, you remember the TV series Breaking Bad? Yes. Okay, because I need to catch up with that, but they referenced that. So I, I point that out also because uh, they busted these four people who come from this gang that's, I won't say their name, but they're they're the ones that say the new generation, the next generation, mm-hmm. whatever. And so they think they're connected with that, that group. So they were using businesses. They were really fronts for drug depots supermarkets from California to businesses in Houston, car wash, uh, Pennsylvania. So what do you think? I mean, what is something maybe Congress can do or FBI? Where, where does this go next as far as that? This is going to continue. 
Uh, I'm afraid I'm afraid the Breaking Bad uh, imagery. I got a little I got a little lost in that. What is it that you want the government to tackle? I got confused. Sorry. Well, they're making these uh, drug labs mm-hmm. in these businesses. Yeah, they're using these businesses as fronts for their drugs. So I don't know. I think it's something that maybe the uh, FBI should be cracking down more. Well, that would be the purview of the DEA, uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives yeah. Department. They're the ones that look into, they do work with local police on those, um, on those situations, but, uh, that would, that would be the DEA rather than the FBI. I don't think that's the FBI's purview. And, um, honestly, yeah, that is, yeah. um, the whole drug war. That's not really a story that I've been following in any great detail and uh, wouldn't want to make any comments because I, I just don't feel like I have the facts, Eduardo. Um, I only have a limited number of hours in the day and I'm keeping my head above water just with politics. Right. Well, we got so the please forgive uh, me. Couple weeks. Yeah. yeah. Well, we got the mayor's office. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. But I just, yeah. I thought I'd throw on a different topic out there, you know, than. Well, yeah, and um, and you know, and that should be something that uh, down the road, maybe after we get this next election and runoff uh, right. behind us, that would be something to do uh, a dive into. That would be an interesting thing. When we don't have an, an election that's imminent, I do like to pick a topic and devote a week to it, where at least at least one guest every day is dealing with that topic, so that you know we spend a week learning a little bit about an issue that maybe we otherwise wouldn't get a chance uh, to talk to people about. And I'm going to tuck right, that like one away for future line. use. Yeah. We're going to have a law, law official on the air mm-hmm. going into detail. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Well, thank you. And thank you for the call. Thank you, Joan. You're yep. very welcome. Glad you uh, joined our conversation today. You know, I do want to talk more about the State of the Union, and we are going to be talking more about the mayor's race. Again, remember, we are going to be uh, chatting with uh, mayoral candidate Paul Vallis later today at 3.30. But there's just something that I want to share with you before we go to break. It doesn't have anything to do with any of the issues that we are talking about. I thought it was interesting, A, um, because you generally don't get a sense that Republicans have much of a sense of humor about their own foibles. Well, Republican Nancy Mace addressed the press club recently. And, you know, as when politicians address a big gathering of journalists, you know, they often try to inject their talks with some humor. And she did that. I'm not saying that she doesn't take a dig at Dems, but most of her, quote, comedy routine, she made fun of her fellow Republicans. And when was the last time you can remember that happening? Andy, um, Andy Miles, who works with me on uh, Tuesday, listened to the speech and put together some clips of some of her Sometimes pretty funny barbs directed at her own party. I mean, this is so unusual. The New York Times actually did a story on it about how a Republican actually went after Republicans, uh, you know, when she was making this speech. Uh, Nancy Mace, the Republican from South Carolina. Listen to this. Did you watch the, uh, did you watch McCarthy during the speaker's vote? I know many of you, uh, were in the halls of Congress during that vote. I haven't seen someone assume that many positions to appease 
the crazy Republicans and Stormy Daniels. But let's be honest, we all knew that Matt Gates would never let the vote get to 18. All right, I know George Santos hoped to deliver tonight's keynote, but organizers, our lovely, beautiful organizers, wanted someone who could tell a joke but not actually be one. <laughs> Come on, George, you've given Republicans a bad name, and that's Lauren Boebert's job. <laughs> Just kidding, Lauren, don't shoot. <laughs> I mean, really, like, who lies about, being a, about playing college volleyball? Like, who does that? <laughs> if you're gonna lie, at least make it about something big. Like you actually won the 2020 presidential election. <laughs> Some think that Raphael Warnock is the future of the Democrat Party. But nothing says political superstar like needing a runoff to beat Herschel Walker. <laughs> Herschel Walker had a clear message that uh, helmets in the 80s didn't have enough padding. Yeah, with that, I send you to the news at the top of the hour. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. It is Friday, and on Friday, we take your calls and talk about the news of the day, the news of the week. Um, so let's just uh, let's get right back to it, Lady B. Uh, George is calling in from the south side. Hello, George. How are you? Hi, Joan. Happy Friday. How are you? Feeling? Happy Friday. So um, this might sound like getting into minutia and stuff, but I've been fascinated by the nuts and bolts and mechanics of the construction of the giant balloon that was brought down over the South Carolina coast. I was thinking back to the disaster of the Hindenburg. Mm -hmm. The Hindenburg was fueled with hydrogen. Uh, Highly flammable uh, hydrogen. Yes. It was, and my recollection is, and I may be wrong, so somebody else can correct me, I'll be happy to hear it, that um, because of the Nazis taking over Germany, that I believe the United States had embargoed shipments of helium to Germany. Um, the United States then and now, I think, is still the single largest producer of helium in the world. And I'm pretty sure it's kind of quiet. Recently, I think the federal government announced that it would not be exporting any helium for a while to make sure our national reserve is filled and preserved. But one of the re- um, results of not being able to get helium was that the Hindenburg design was increased by, I think, 15% in terms of 
lifting capacity and passenger um, capacity because hydrogen can lift more than helium. And when it was reported in the news that, um, and I'm still not clear on this, I hope we find out more as time goes by, that either the apparatus hanging below this balloon was as big as three city buses or the balloon itself was as big as three city buses. I'm guessing they were talking about the apparatus. And if it's three city buses long, that's like 180 feet. That's huge. Yeah, well, they said that the uh, what I read was that the balloon is 200 feet tall. That was the measurement that I read. So I took that to mean the apparatus and the actual balloon itself. Because they were saying tall, which I meant, you know, from the bottom to the top. Right. But the the point is, is that to, to lift that much stuff requires a balloon of enormous size and 200 feet is, you know, that's two-thirds of a football field. Mm-hmm. Uh, just filling that and launching it would be a, a, a serious technical challenge. But I was hoping that uh, when the government tells us more about the details, if they know, if they were able to figure out if that balloon was filled with helium or hydrogen. Well, I did see the video footage of when they shot it down, and had it been filled with hydrogen, my guess is that there would have been, at least for a few seconds, a huge fiery explosion, and there was not. I mean, you could see it outgassing, but, I mean, the actual balloon itself, I never saw any fire, and it didn't appear to catch fire. So, you know, who knows? I, I, I think it'll be fascinating. I wonder if they will, when they finally do get the specs on that, if it will ever become public knowledge and we can actually uh, sort of dig into that or whether it will be something that they decide not to publish for fear. I don't know that everybody will start putting balloons up then. Yeah. I mean, I don't Interesting, know. George. And thank you so much uh, for the call. I appreciate it. I want to try to get everybody in. Uh, so let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Dave is calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hello, Dave. Hey, Joan. Yeah, like with that balloon, what they shot it with, it's a good thing they shot it over the ocean because I think it's kind of like a pin that went through a regular balloon because, you know, it would have had open ocean to for that whatever missile they hit, you know, pop through it. That's why I don't think there was any blow-up on it either, why you needed mm-hmm. open area, just like that one today that they shot up a lot in the, kind of in the Arctic area. So, yeah, you know, no no people. But uh, when um, you were mentioning about uh, uh, documents, I see they found another one in Pence's home today. Another one? I, I missed yeah, that. I I knew yeah. that they were continuing to look, but I didn't realize they they had added one to the pile. Yeah, they just found it today. And, uh, wow. We classified marking, and I, I guess, you know, it was voluntarily, but he wasn't too happy, I guess. But uh, And um, when one of the other callers you mentioned on the documents, like uh, with Biden's in 74, well, they, I had heard a story earlier where, Lyndon Johnson, when he left office, he had scooped up all these documents on Vietnam. And until President Carter had signed in the that Presidential Records Act in 78, they said they treated it more like their own personal property and not like for their libraries and stuff like that. And, and 
Well, you know, that's that was that's really interesting that you say that, because obviously one of the big components of a presidential library are papers from the presidency. You know, this is when scholars decide to, you know, they want to write a a book about Ronald Reagan. So they go to the Ronald Reagan presidential library and they are able to look through various notes, various documents. So I'm not quite clear, honestly, Dave, on I mean, obviously, if something is secret or top secret, that would definitely belong to the National Archive. But I know that the National Archive pretty much collects every scrap of paper it can get its hands on. So how they decide what goes to a presidential library and what goes to the National Archive, I don't I don't understand how they how they figure that out. I mean, like I said, clearly, if it's secret or top secret, you know, then uh, then that means it should be, you know, kept in a safe place. But there's a lot of, of notes and papers that don't fall into that category. And who gets what? It's um, I don't think it's frankly, I don't think it's clear to the people in office. I mean, you know, you said they just found another document at Mike Pence's house. And there has been there's been a call from some people at the National Archives that, you know, we really should go to George Bush's house, senior and junior. We should go to Barack Obama's house. Um, we should go to the Clinton's properties and their and their vice president's properties. And we should look around because clearly this is something that happens more often than it should. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like uh President Carter had, like I say, he signed that law in 78, but around 81 or so, he had located one in his home in Plains that he immediately turned him over. And then mm-hmm. the ones like from Reagan on and acted pretty much, you know, that uh, if they had them. And it was pretty much, they said that if you actually went, say, like to the National Archives and uh, took the stuff, you know, that was in... in uh, uh, seclusion there at the, and you took it to your own unsecured area that you were breaking the law then you know but uh, huh. and um when um, you and roosevelt were talking about uh, one of them that one of trump's acolytes that it was alan weisselberg he's that uh guy that was the money man that uh, kind of knew where all the uh, skeletons were buried and he wouldn't talk and he's i believe he's uh, five months in prison right now that. Um, yeah, well, 100 days. I don't know. Yeah. I read something about five, five, okay, 100 days, five months, whatever. And then he's like with Cohen that he had 15 trips now to the this uh, council or whatever. And uh, mm-hmm. that's, well, it took uh, who uh, McCarthy 15 times to get his vote, too. So they're trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the magic number, huh, Dave? Yeah, yeah. Well, thank thank you for that, and thank you for the call. I appreciate it. I want to shift gears before we go to break, uh, because we are going to be spending uh, some time coming up talking about the mayor's race and uh, other forums that uh, you can attend to hear what the candidates have to say. Last night, Mike Flannery on Channel 32 had a forum with the candidates, and um, while, well, I get each one of them, there's going to be outrageous things and there's going to be attacks. And I want to share with you a little bit of sound as this interchange 
where uh, the mayor was asked a question by Mike Flannery and um, <laughs> ended up getting into a little bit of a heated exchange with him. Uh, listen to Lori Lightfoot last night on uh, Channel 32. Mayor Lightfoot, why are 45 percent of Chicago school kids? So, so here's, what, here's, here's what I want to say, Mike. I'm listening to your questions. I'm listening to the answers of a colleague's. This may be the Fox News perspective on the city of Chicago and CPS. It's not the reality that I live in every single day. Well, you have disparaged your... No, no, no. Let me, fin- let, me, let me finish, please. You asked me a question. I'd like to finish. You are, dist- you are characterizing our kids that are exceeding all odds, working hard every day. And yes, the graduation rates are up despite the pandemic. Yes, they're getting scholarships at an, at an amazing level. You're describing them as if they're dumb, lazy, and not that's doing not, anything. That's so, absolutely yeah, false. That, that is the, that is the, the question premise, actually, Madam that is the Mayor, premise the question was about question. the 45% here's what, here's, of kids who are chronically absent. Here's what I know. What, the, why are they not I know. in class? Here's what I know, Mike. The reality, and I invite you to come with me sometime to an elementary school or high school, and here's what you would see. Building principals, doing everything they can to knock on doors, literally, to bring those kids back. Yeah, we lost some kids during remote learning, but we have gotten them back. Here's what I also know, that we have put in a ton of resources to make sure that those kids that um, are struggling, that they have a place in school, that they are learning, and that they are thriving. That is the reality. Do we have challenges? Absolutely. But I do not accept the premise of the last four questions that describe CPS in such a So, um, things got a little chaotic, as they often do in these forums. And let's face it, you know, the mayor perhaps got what she was really after. When you attack either... <laughs> one of your challengers or the moderator, um, that tends to be the kind of interchange that radio and TV people go, ooh, let's play that one. You know, that one's exciting. So um, essentially, it is a way to make yourself newsworthy when you attend a forum like that. It is sometimes... Sometimes the anger is more strategic than it is real, true anger. But you know what? We played the soundbite. So there you, there you have it. I also know um, we're going to be talking to Paul Vallis at uh, 3.30. Um, there, Channel 32 put out a real quick clip of, uh, I believe this was part of their closing statements. Uh, so listen to what Paul Vallis had to say last night. This election is about leadership, a crisis in leadership, because every single problem the city is experiencing from a degraded police department deteriorating schools or ever-increasing property taxes, fines, and fees is really a product of bad decisions from the fifth floor. And it didn't begin with this mayor, but it certainly has gotten worse. So this is why we're running, to bring the type of leadership to the city that can, in a sense, bring the resources in, in terms of the human resources, draw from the community the type of leaders who can move the city forward. We're going to be talking with um, Mr. Vallis today at 3.30. Uh, we are going to be asking him uh, about whether or not he's really a Republican, uh, how he feels about a woman's right to choose. We've got a couple, uh, uh, we've got some questions that came in from the, from the audience, things that you have either emailed me or texted me. And also there, we're probably going to ask him about this situation. Uh, Channel 11 anchors, 
announced that um, they had discovered that Mr. Vallis uh, owned a property in Palos Heights. It's where his wife lives. And was that indeed his primary residence? Was he not a resident of the city of Chicago, even though he has an apartment in Bridgeport uh, today? Um, Paris shoots to his credit is following up on this. And um, the Cook County assessor uh, says that Paul Vallis did not improperly claim a homeowner's exemption on the Palos Heights property. But now there's some question about whether he also owns a property in Moni. So we'll ask him to straighten that out for us. Let's take a break. And I'm going to tell you about another mayoral forum coming up soon, right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Around the town, Chicago, with Al Beslaw. I want to give away some stuff, and some of these things I'm going to give away, you don't even have to answer a question. So all you have to do is call. For the magic of the Nutcracker, four tickets. All you have to do is say, crack my nuts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why did you come up with that? I don't know. I just felt like saying something silly. Okay. Sunday afternoons at 2 on WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is a mayoral form. Well, there's probably going to be lots of mayoral forms coming up before February 28th finally gets here. But we want to tell you about a special forum that is uh, taking place this Saturday at Rainbow Push Coalition. It is going to be from 10 a.m. to 1130 a.m. this Saturday. And uh, that's going to be at the New Beginnings Church, 6620 South King Drive in Chicago, New Beginnings Church, Rainbow Push Coalition Mayoral Forum, Saturday, this Saturday, as in tomorrow, 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Joining us now to tell us a little bit more about this is uh, Push Rainbow Push Coalition Executive Director Bishop Tavis Grant. Uh, Bishop Grant, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. This is an amazing show, and of course, you're an amazing host. (laughs) Well, thank you. What more can you tell us about the forum tomorrow morning? Well, this forum is so critical and timely. You know, the work of Reverend Jackson Jackson around the country has set forth a template for urban redevelopment, uh, engagement, and empowerment. This particular election here in Chicago could serve as a template uh, for moving uh, the communities of color forward, utilizing a democratic option. Uh, and the, the importance of this election as it relates to housing, economics, health care, education, and the recapitalization of some of our hardest-hit communities since the pandemic, uh, there's no better time than now for us to be engaged in this electoral process. You are titling this forum The People's Agenda, I assume that's why you're focusing on kind of, it sounds like bread and butter issues. Well, it's significant. You know, when you listen to the president uh, just just days ago on the State of the Union, he seemed to outline key issues uh, that uh, resonate with communities of color here in Chicago and around the country. 
particularly on the south and west sides. People want to know what is the uh, public safety plan. People want to know what is the education plan. You know, what's the plan of bringing recovery, economic and financial, uh, to communities of color? And then what is the opportunity for like-minded people to work together in a collaborative fashion uh, to unite our city? This is, this is the most uh, incredible city anywhere. I can say that having traveled all over the world, and yet the opportunity to resolve some of these real problems uh, I, 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 right at hand and doesn't start on the fifth floor but starts on the doorstep of every home in Chicago. Do you have confirmation from all of the candidates that they're going to attend? Uh, we, we, uh, we have confirmation from, from uh, as I understand it, from all of our candidates. And I think, you know, you mentioned earlier in your opening uh, you know, the, the number of forums and debates that have gone on. I think this one is a little bit different because Reverend Jackson has had a, an open-door policy uh, working across the aisle with people across the country from Capitol Hill to, to Springfield. And this is a tremendous opportunity for the community to be engaged and do something. Our, our surveys and our, our polling has suggested people want answers uh, not angles and and perception. So this is going to be quite different uh, form uh, than than some of the others. If people want to attend, do they just show up? Do they have to register? Do they need to buy a ticket? How does it work? Well, you register with your voice and your presence. Sixty okay. twenty South King Drive at the New Beginnings Church, and really appreciative of uh, Pastor Corey Brooks. And then we have. The involvement of COCO, Souls to the Poles, FEIU, and Project Hood. And so this is a big tent opportunity uh, for people to come uh, and, and for the candidates not just to be seen, but for the voters and residents to be heard. At any point uh, after this, will Rainbow Push make an endorsement? We are a nonpartisan organization, and um, it, it for, for for good reason, uh, because the community, you know, 55 years of work, Reverend Jackson, the community needs a place and a space uh, that serves the purpose of educating, uh, empowering, and equipping people to be able to have some self-determination. And so uh, that's the role and, and responsibility of Reverend Jackson, myself, and the Rainbow Push Coalition. And so... Uh, this is Dr. King's workshop, and uh, we're glad about it. Well, I thank you, um, Bishop Tavis Grant, joining us to give us a little preview of the mayoral forum that is going to be tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. New Beginnings Church, 6620 South King Drive. Show up if you can get there, if you are in the neighborhood. It plans to be a really interesting discussion and uh, Bishop Grant, thank you so much for telling my, me and all my listeners about it. Thanks for being here. Thank you, and, and thanks for helping us keep hope alive. You're very welcome. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with one of the candidates right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. 
This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are going to be talking over the next week and a half to hopefully all of the candidates who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. First, we are kicking this off with somebody you have heard. Well, you used to hear on a pretty regular basis on this radio station, Paul Vallis, who is uh, turning out to be the front runner or at the, at the very least one of the front runners in this race, which means that we have a lot of questions to be asking him. Mr. Vallis, welcome back to the WCPT Airwaves. Well, thanks for having me. You mean if I was at the back of the pack, you wouldn't want to ask me any questions? Oh, no. I would probably be nicer to you, though, if you were at the back of the pack and really didn't have a chance to win. You know, that's one of the problems of being a front runner is we, you know, we've got to hold your feet to the fire, Mr. Vallis. That's right. That's right. That's what my wife told me. She said, be careful what you wish for because you're going to get it. <laughs> I know. I know. Your campaign is on fire. And I'm I'm not OK. We're going to ask you about this whole uh, Channel 11 thing that uh, that I frankly I'm not sure I grasp completely. Uh, Paris shoots uh, reported first that, you know, did you really live in the city of Chicago because right. you have a home in Palos Heights? You took a homestead right, right. Adve- uh, exemption there, but you have an apartment in Bridgeport. And, you know, were you really a Chicago resident? Now, to his credit, Paris didn't leave it alone. He kept digging. And he uh, just tweeted a little while ago that the Cook County Assessor has a new statement out saying it has concluded its investigation and determined that the Vallises did not improperly claim a homeowner's exemption on the Palos Heights property. So you... So that means, I guess, the homeowner's exemption was proper. But does that mean that that's your main residence? Well, let me respond. Let me respond. As you well know, having done your show uh, many a time before becoming uh, a a candidate, my wife and I live apart in part uh, because when we returned from Philadelphia and I went off to New Orleans, uh, my wife basically said, that's it. I'm not following you anymore. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I went to New Orleans, and, of course, she was smart enough to uh, send at least one or two of the kids with me. And, of course, as you know, my youngest son went with me everywhere. Um, my youngest son passed away. So, you know, so I went to Bridgeport and lived in Bridgeport. Uh, when I took over the schools there, of course, I spent five years in New Orleans uh, rebuilding the schools there. And, of course, I, I spent considerable time living both in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, after the earthquake, doing doing uh, relief work, and of course, also time in Chile. Uh, so the so basically, you you're saying you don't live anywhere. You like live in like the back seat of your car. Or suffice to say, my wife has always said, uh, "You go off and do your own thing. Uh, I'm going to live right here next door to my 89 year old parents, and I'm going to uh, keep an eye on your 94 year old mother." And uh, you go off and, uh, you know, if you win, I don't know. Uh, Maybe I'll move back in with you and maybe I won't. But the bottom line is, uh, first and foremost, there's no question of my residency in Chicago. It is established. Uh, I live there. I sleep there. I watch my movies there every night. Just ask my neighbor. Uh, You know, we wish we could afford more than one home, you know, but we can't. Well, speaking of which, there was also some reporting that there's a property in Moni that you own in trust. And there was some question about 
about, I don't know, whether or not you sometimes live there? Can you explain that or well, tell me about that? Let me, let me tell you what happened. They really made a monumental error, and it's the second time there's been some collusion between certain people from from certain uh, of the campaigns and reporters who have reported before doing fact, uh, doing any fact-checking. If you remember, about six months ago, uh, they tweeted a story that I had uh, once voted, I had registered in the Republican primary to vote, and then, of course, they had a backtrack when they discovered that the Secretary of State's office had actually made a, a mistake with my address, so they were actually reporting the voter registration of my very conservative neighbor Bridgeport. And well, you just you just um, predicted my second question, which was going to be, you know, you're yeah. being accused of being a Republican. Right. Well, let me respond. Let me respond to your other point. And, and I think they've they posted a retraction. So late, so yesterday night before the campaign, uh, before the campaign debate on Fox News, uh, we get a call five minutes before the debate, basically making that accusation that we seem to have a second homestead exemption. It seems to be in Moline. And we, of course, said, well, that's not true. We'll send you our, our W-2s. You can take a look at our tax forms. You know, my wife uh, owns, uh, has a home in the suburbs. Uh, hey, at least I'm still married, right? And, uh, and no, we don't have a cottage in Michigan or a home in California or, you know, we have so many so many individuals in elected office who have actually have more than one home. We, uh, so, but, but the point that I wanted to make was uh, they said, oh, my God, you know, we said we don't have a home in Monia. We're certainly not claiming another property tax exemption. And we said, why don't you wait until we check it out? Well, you know, don't let a good lead interfere with a story, uh, a, a fact checking be damned. And sure enough, uh, they reported that, well, they have a second homestead exemption on home in Moni. Well, what they independently did was they actually looked at uh, the, the, the people who had sold our home or sold the home, uh, the home to, uh, you know, to, to us. Uh, they then moved to Moni, bought their own home, built their own home, and took a homestead exemption. So they were counting two homestead exemptions. They were counting the homestead exemption that my wife claims and the homestead exemption that the people who had sold us the home were claiming in Monique. So they, of course, uh, uh, posted a retraction. And, of course, the, you know, Kagi, you know, uh, decided to, uh, he issued that the investigation had concluded, probably the fastest investigation in history. So the bottom line is this was clearly a second attempt to try to embarrass me that backfired that blew up in their face. Look, uh, the bottom line is the city's on fire here. I mean, you know, violent crime is up again. Violent crime uh, uh, through, uh, through February is up like 60%. They're averaging 100 uh, stolen vehicles a day. A report just came out about the abysmal academic performance of the Chicago Public Schools. They still haven't recovered from the 15 months that they were closed. Of course, uh, uh, a, report, a, a more recent report just the other day said that half the kids who are who are still registered in the school district are truant. So uh, these are not the issues that they want to discuss. And I have had nauseam on your show for so many times, as well as on other shows, talked about the issues, the issues of rising crime, the issues of substandard schools that people are fleeing in record number, and the fact that despite $6 billion in COVID money, we have raised property taxes, $900 million. Nobody wants to debate me on the issues. 
sort of looking for side issues. But this is this is the victim. You know, this is what happens when you're ahead and they can't challenge you on the issues. They'd rather make up stuff or they'd rather make accusations that ultimately are proven to be false and then kind of sheepishly apologize and then go on to try to find the next opportunity to make uh, an outlandish claim. Well, we're going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, uh, you've raised the issues of schools. Uh, we have a listener question uh, for you on that subject. Paul Ballas and I will be right back after this. Take Jonas Pazito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. For the next week and a half, we're going to be talking to the candidates who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. I am joined right now by Paul Vallis. And Paul, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, before we did the WCPT mayoral forum, we all collaborated on the questions. And I have to I have to admit to you that three times I went back and I said, no, this question for Paul Vallis isn't tough enough. No, it's too easy. He'll answer this really fast. No, you got to make it harder. We have to make it harder. So, you know, I'm I'm just coming clean right here, right now. I did that. And, um, okay, let's talk about, you're very welcome, I, you know. Um, as, as, uh, as Julius Caesar said on the eyes of Mars, et tu, et Yeah, tu, Joan. Um, so let's talk about schools. You know, the rap on you is that you're not, even though you were CEO, you're not really a, a supporter of public schools. You uh, create charter schools wherever you go uh, for a multitude of reasons, one of which might be to weaken um, school teacher unions. That's the accusation. How do you respond? Well, you know, first of all, uh, let me respond by saying this. Charter schools are public schools. And when I was in the Chicago public schools, we actually opened only 18 charter schools. And let me point out that we opened the charter schools in partnership with the teachers union, because Albert Shanker was one of the, the three-decade leader of the American Federation of, of uh, Teachers, was a strong advocate and one of the original you know, uh, advocates for charter schools. In fact, we met with him. But we opened a limited number of charter schools. Uh, some of my so-called critics out there constantly seem to confuse me with another top superintendent, who actually became Barack Obama's education secretary. So the bottom line is programs like Renaissance 2010 and some of the other programs that they like to criticize now, uh, they're not happening on my watch. But let me point out that when we ran the Chicago Public Schools, uh, they had lost 115,000 kids uh, in the previous 15 years, and they had had eight strikes in 15 years. And we not only... Uh, brought union peace. We raised teacher salaries 22%. We didn't have to lay off any teachers because our schools grew. We opened, we opened 30 new school buildings, renovated 48 schools, tore down all the pre-fast schools in the south and west side, and we put magnet programs in neighborhood schools. And, yes, we opened 18 charters, but guess what? A large number of those charters were alternative schools 
for individual for students who are dropped out, left, or have been incarcerated. That's how the uh, Youth Connection Charter School uh, network of schools opened up. So at the end of the day, I think we use charters strategically. But since my critics, particularly from the Chicago Teachers Union, are so quick to distort my record or confuse me with other other super, future superintendents, I want to point out a couple things. Uh, besides being endorsed by the former head of the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, Debbie Lynch, and and, and uh, hundreds hundreds of veteran educators, principals, and administrators, many of whom became superintendents who used to be CTU members, just remember this current union leadership shut the public school system down for 15 consecutive months with devastating consequences. Fewer than 10% of black children in Chicago are computing at grade level. And in fact, I think it's 6% if they're still graduating 80 to 90% of the individuals in the schools. And let me point out that since 2019, there have been 200 murders of school-age youth, 17 years and younger, and 8% of the, sh- of the killers, 9% of the shooters, almost 50% of the carjackings, the rest for carjackings, have been of school-age youth, 17 years and younger. You know what they all have in common? 95% of them were not in school. And I want to make one more point, too, and I want your listeners to listen uh, very closely about this. There are 56,000 kids attending public not-for-profit charter schools in Chicago. These charters have emerged uh, um, many times from community-based organizations looking for better school alternatives. 96% of the kids are black and Latino, and those charter schools have about a 75% approval rating. And do you know that that the school board, under pressure from the current leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union, will not allow those children to use the empty or mostly empty public school buildings. So you'll have a school like Manly with 67 kids and 27 faculty, a school built for 1,200, and the charter school just a couple miles away with 400 kids or 500 kids, uh, kids being educated in a warehouse, are denied access to that public building. To that public building. If that's not sinful, if that's not irresponsible, if that's not punitive, I don't know what is. So I am not, not and never will be, allow myself to be lectured by the current leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union because they have done permanent damage to a whole generation of kids and they continue to discriminate against 56,000 children, mostly black and Latino, who are denied access to even the buildings that are closed, even if they want to rent those buildings, they will not allow them to occupy their buildings. Paul, you and I talked about this a lot during the pandemic, and we don't com- our our views don't completely line up. I, I, I understand. I'm not faulting any of your statistics. I know that kids who were supposed to be learning remotely didn't do it. There were a lot. The crime went up a lot. A lot of young people were wandering the streets when they should have been studying. But We did have a pandemic, and while maybe the solution we found wasn't perfect, had classes continued, you know, we would have had students dying and teachers dying, particularly up until there was a vaccination. So, you know, it's 
it's I do understand that there were a lot of kids who were uh, really set back in their education. I do understand that crime went up, but I don't know that there was a perfect solution. And I don't know that, you know, if, if we had kept the schools open, maybe now you and I would be arguing over the fact of how many teachers, you know, got sick and, and died or how many students got sick and died. It's it's a we've had this discussion before. So let's for now, let's just table it, because I have to also ask you, um, do you support a woman's right to bodily autonomy? Because, again, another thing that uh, people are saying is that, you know, you're um, you don't support abortion rights. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I have always supported abortion rights. I, we had that very discussion on your show after after the Roe versus Wade decision, and we thought that that was an outrageous decision. And look, I have, I have I'm a lifelong Democrat who has run for public office consistently as a Democrat, and in all my elections, I have always gotten 100 percent approval from from Planned Parenthood and all the other advocacy groups. So at the end of the day. I have always been 100 percent supportive of women's reproductive rights, and I will continue to be supportive of not only women who live in Chicago, but anyone who comes to Chicago. They will always have their rights protected. Period. They're just saying this because once again, you know, they want to run against. Uh, you know, if they if they can't run against uh, uh, a, a conservative, they're going to have to invent one. So, so working for Don Clark Nets consistently being supported by those organizations, consistently having 100 percent approval ratings. And, and not only that, going as so far on, on, on other issues as putting domestic partners in all the city contracts in the 1990s when, before it was popular to do so, just unilaterally, or even supporting marriage equality when they called it gay marriage when I ran for governor 21 years ago, when none of the other politicians, I mean, it took uh, uh, President Obama and and, and then and Vice President Biden, I, I think another decade before they embraced that. I've always been ahead of the game. So they're just going to keep on saying it over and over. And you know me better than that. We've talked about this in the past. I mean, that accusation is particularly false and it's outrageous, as well as the accusation that somehow I'm a Republican. We asked uh, the listeners if they wanted to text in any questions for you. And um, we just got a text from Mark. And uh, thank you, Mr. Vallis. Now I am getting grief as well uh, because Mark's text is stop patronizing us with an FOP right wing Republican mayoral candidate. That endorsement from the FOP is uh, still uh, ink- rankling some people. Talk about that. Well, well, you know, let me point out that I don't get to pick the, the uh, union leaders. And just as I have have uh, I'll have to negotiate with the president of the FOP, I'll also have to negotiate with the head of the teachers union. And so I'll be negotiating with Stacey Davis Gates as well as Brandon Johnson. So at the end of the day, the unions picked their own leaders. Look, I am supported by the rank and file cops. That's why I got that endorsement. But let me point out, as you know, because we have talked about this uh, even long before I was a candidate, I was invited to come in and to help settle a contract that had that contract not been settled, the cops had not not had had a contract or pay increase in four years. There were probably well over 2000 police officers eligible to retire who would have left. And and the the district has lost 2000 officers the last two years which is why half the high-priority 911 calls are not being responded to in real time because they don't have police cars available. 
So the point is, I came in and negotiated a collective bargaining agreement, an eight-year agreement that kept that massive exodus from happening. And when I got into the negotiations, I made two demands. Demand number one, demand number one was that uh, that agreement had to include all the accountability provisions that were in the sergeant's contract. And, and that is what all the editorial boards were advocating for. And, and uh, number two, I could not, I would not accept any money for doing the work. And I, in fact, didn't. They donated the money to a children's charity, nor would I uh, accept any money if I ever received an FOP endorsement. So at the end of the day, I like to think that I did the marriage job for her. They all praised the contract, the contract I settled. And so I stepped in. The rank-and-file cops, of which, of which I come from a family of police officers, firefighters, and teachers, they supported me. That is the reason that I got the endorsement. And that's the reason that I'm beginning to get the endorsement of, of, other, uh, of uh, other unions. I don't get to pick who heads the unions. I have to negotiate with the person who heads the unions. But I believe that my ability to appeal to the rank-and-file police officers gives me great leverage because if we are really going to restore the police department and implement the consent decree and bring real police accountability, we're going to have to we're going to have to find a way to cooperate. We're going to have to find a way to to you know to uh, generate a lot of support. I'm going to have to be, be be able to be in a position where I can where I can push the union in, in the right direction through appealing to the work and file, the rank and file, their rank and file members. And that is what I've always been able to do. And that is why I've never nego and I've never of all the contracts I've negotiated in four different cities. I've never had a strike. I've never had a rain delay. And I've always had contract settlements that have given, given workers increased, uh, increased compensation. You know, Paul, when I first started working at this radio station, for a long time, there was an essay by political consultant Don Rose that was taped to the front door. And in that essay, Don Rose argued that we are Democrats. We are a big tent. We are not maybe as as narrowly focused as Republicans, but you can be a Democrat. I mean, we had uh, Dan Lipinski, who was steadfastly against abortion, and he was a, a Democrat. You know, Don Rose's argument is that we are a big tent. Some of us are very progressive. Some of us are very, very moderate. Some of us are very conservative. But it doesn't mean that we're not all Democrats. And that was uh, shown to me as sort of the guiding principle of my show. You are a Democrat. Some would say a conservative Democrat. Maybe you'd even say that yourself. But I get a lot of newsletters in this job from a lot of the various progressive organizations around the state. And they are very worried about your candidacy. Your being the next mayor of Chicago frightens them. Why do you think that is? And what can you do to address that? Well, you know, the point is, well, look, uh, you know, I, you know, there's always going to be the groups that are going to try to, to, to scare people or or try to generalize or misrepresent candidates' positions on the issues and things like that. I mean, the bottom line is I'm about public safety. I'm about quality schools and I'm about uh, taking this twenty eight billion dollar uh, uh, monstrosity of a budget that the mayor controls and investing it in ways that demonstrates that really creates 
uh, equal opportunities and, and, and in ways that creates real investment. The bottom line is I have a track record. I have a track record for balancing budgets, affordable housing, infrastructure, ensuring that all neighborhoods have beat cops who can respond to 911 calls. My transformation of the Chicago Public Schools has been praised by three presidents. I rebuilt an entire school system in, in New Orleans after the devastation of Hurricane Katrina that's been praised by three presidents, including uh, President Barack Obama, who came, who came to visit New Orleans and to praise us after we had concluded the FEMA settlement. So my record, and it, I was way out ahead on domestic partners and on marriage equality. I mean, Rob Gorvich ran ads attacking me downstate on my position on marriage equality in 2001. So the bottom line is, all I can I have a body of work that is there. Find me a candidate that has done the international work that I have. I mean, I went to Haiti 40 times. Maybe I went there so many times because my, my youngest son, who died of, died of long-term drug addictions, was only clean when I had him in Haiti, and I couldn't, he couldn't get access to drugs. But not only did we take care of 50,000 Haitians for six years, but I stayed as finance chair of Sean Penn's organization for 10 years. We have done 2.7 million vaccinations in eight different cities since COVID started. Two point, since the vaccine became available. 2.7 million. That was an organization that I was on the board of. That was an organization that I was financial chair of. So you find someone who has built more schools, has done more in BWB, has provided more support for families, or for that matter, has done more stuff to battle COVID than me. And if you can find that person, then you should vote for that person. But people are just going to have to, you know, do their own research and do their own fact-checking because this election, I'm, you know, I sit there at those forums and I hear the same answer to multiple questions. The question is who has a body of work? And, I, you know, and, you know, I haven't been praised by three, by three presidents because I've been ineffective. I've been praised by three presidents because I've risen to every invitation to come in to crisis situations and make things better. And, you know, had I been sitting around like public servants milking contracts or padding my pension salary, my wife wouldn't have to be going to work at midnight at TSA so that our, we so that we can have so that we can have uh, uh, we can have good health insurance. So at the end of the day, my body of work is there and uh, I'm going to run on my record. And obviously, some people may may decide not to inform themselves. And there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is state my case and let the voters decide. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it is always interesting and informative to talk with you. And you bring a lot of passion to what you believe in, and you share that passion with me and my radio audience. Thank you again for being here. Well, thank you, John. Take care, my friend. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT820. Greg Hines is the uh, political reporter for Cranes Chicago Business. Cranes... Uh, 
uh, had their own mayoral forum on uh, February 1st that Greg has written about. And um, his uh, publication's editorial board has weighed in on at least one of the candidates in detail. Uh, But what I wanted to talk to Greg about, I I love this headline. He uh, wrote an article in the February 6th print edition. Yes, I'm old fashioned. I read the print edition sometimes of uh, Crane's Chicago Business. And the title was Merrill Hopefuls. Watch out for banana peels, which I think is a really good uh, political consultant advice. Greg Hines joins us now to talk about that and other political things. Greg, how are you? I'm fine, Joan. How are you? I'm good. Um, For those of my listeners who weren't able to attend or see the Cranes mayoral forum, give us a give give us a quick recap, if you would. Well, I mean, we only had an hour and trying to get anything sensible out of nine candidates in one in one hour is really tough. Yeah. Uh, let's just say that uh, that uh, everybody beat up on the front runners, particularly on Lori Lightfoot, who took a lot of shots. Um, everybody's concerned about crime, but there's some real differences in approach. Uh, uh, some candidates are much, much bigger on uh, on dealing with underlying social conditions and they are beefing up the police. Other can- other uh, candidates go the other way. Um, and, Pretty much everybody's against taxes except for uh, Brandon Johnson, who wants to raise all kinds of taxes to pay for stuff. We can talk about that if you want. Um, but, you know, my, my takeaway here is that uh, is that I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, there's <laughs> at least four uh, candidates, maybe five, who have, a, who have a chance to make it into a runoff. We are going to have a runoff. Nobody's going to get anywhere close to the 50 percent need to do it. Yeah, the, w- without question. There was a time very early on when I thought, oh, somebody will run away with it. But no, I I, I completely agree with you um, that there definitely is going to be a runoff. Now, um, I did want to ask about that editorial on Brandon Johnson. Are you, Greg, are you on the editorial board? I am not. So they can speak for themselves. Okay. Uh, but, uh, I can, but I'm familiar, I'm familiar with their thinking. Um, well, yeah, January 30th, they... Um, you know, put out an editorial on what you just made reference to, Brandon Johnson. And though he has backed off of some of this, when he first started talking, he was like, yep, going to like well, there were like half a dozen different taxes that he was going to impose or or uh, percentages he was going to raise on all different kinds of things. And there was an editorial in uh, Crane's January 30th that really said, you know what, we don't think this is a good idea. We don't think these taxes um, make sense. Uh, talk about that a little bit, if you would. Well, what, let's talk about what he wants to use the money for. Uh, mm-hmm. Johnson is of, is of the belief, and I, I agree with much of this, that uh, one of the solutions to crime is you can't just send in cops and uh, have them beat on people or send on people. You have to deal with the reasons some people want to commit crimes. Some people are just bad. They go out and do bad stuff. But others are younger people. They're kids. They don't see a lot of hope. Uh, they come up in a terrible neighborhood. Everybody's got a gun, so they get one. But, uh, uh, they, they think they're you know going to die at 30, so they might as well go out and have a good time. Um, uh, so you need to invest in mental health services. Uh, you need to invest in educational services. You need to invest in job training and economic development, whatever. Um, we haven't probably done enough of that. I agree with Mr. Johnson. Uh, we need to do more. Um, the question is where you get the money. Um, if you take it away from police, part of the population is going to scream their heads off, particularly since we're now have something like 1,100 fewer 
uh, police on the force that we used to uh, a few years ago, which means you have to raise the taxes. Um, you can't raise property taxes anymore. Uh, people, I think, have about had it with property taxes um, uh, uh, because we've raised them a lot to pay for pensions. So um, Mr. Johnson is reaching in a populist playbook as well. Let's tax the rich. We're going we're to find those wealthy people and those and those big fat corporations. And we're going to shake them and make them pay their share, for, their fair share. I think the point our uh, editorial board was trying to make that some of those levies don't make sense. All they're going to do is force people and businesses away from Chicago and leave us worse off than we were before. I mean, for instance, the head tax, which uh, mm-hmm. Richard J. Daly imposed, uh, turned out to be a real butt. It was a big message to business: don't come here. It literally tells you if you're going to if you're going to create jobs, we're going to impose an extra tax on you. We're going to charge mm-hmm. you a certain amount per employee. Uh, uh, and if your business does well and you decide to hire more people, we're going to come after you for more money. Correct. It's 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 literally putting a gun to your head and, and shooting. We finally got rid of it. Well, Johnson wants to bring it back. Uh, he wants to impose a, a tax on jet fuel at O'Hare and shake down all those rich tourists who are coming in. The problem with that is it's illegal. But the law rather clearly says that uh, you can't do those kinds of things. Tax money raised at airports has to stay at airports. If not, every every uh, community in the country would shake down their airport, and the, and the price of flying would be about five times what it is. Um, and so one he's backed off on is he says, well, all those all those rich suburbanites who come to come to Chicago to work downtown, we're gonna we're gonna hit them by raising uh, raising metro fares. We're gonna impose a, a special metro tax. He seems to have backed off that, although although I haven't officially heard that from from uh, his campaign. On the other hand, he wants to uh, he wants to impose a, a tax on the high end shopping districts. Uh, these are wealthy people who go in there; they can afford to pay more. Oh, golly gee, uh, uh, Commissioner, walk down Michigan Avenue right now. It's empty. Yeah. Store yeah, and I live near Old Orchard, and uh, we're, uh, we, we had a three-story Bloomingdale's store that's now being demolished. And uh, on a different part of the mall, there's like this little storefront that's now called Bloomies. And it was like, really, this is it? This is all that's, this is all that's left? Yeah, the politics behind this, Joan, is that is that uh, Brandon Johnson, when he's not a county commissioner, is a paid organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union. He went off the payroll sometime in the last year. His people haven't said when. The union won't say when. But every one of these taxes I just mentioned to you, uh, another one I mentioned is, is a tax on uh, commodities transactions uh, at uh, like the Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange. That doesn't work. They just move the business out of town and use a computer located in a different state. Every one of these ideas came from, guess who? The Chicago Teachers Union. So it looks like he's still shilling for his boss. Well, you I know, when at our, I asked him that our candidate for him and he got mm-hmm. He got uh, quite perturbed and how oh, dare you of I him. Mean, and then he launched into this rather strange speech about how black men need to hold the two jobs to support their families. Okay. Um, so you asked him why his positions reflected those positions taken by the teachers union. And yeah, yeah, the question he... I asked him is, are you speaking for yourself? And are people in Chicago, are you speaking for the guys who signed your paycheck? That's the way I put the question. He was intentionally <laughs> blunt. And uh, he uh, was intentionally blunt black. And he said, uh, and he said, that's outrageous. And then, like I said, he went into this 30-second, 60-second uh, spiel about how uh, African-American men, because they make less, have to hold multiple jobs. Okay. If that's the answer, that's the answer. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah. you know, when, when the, when the group first started running, it's, I can't even remember back when that was. 
I remember thinking at the time that um, Brandon Johnson, while I, I, I thought he might do okay, I, I thought that beyond the teachers' union, he might not have a lot of support. But I have to tell you, when we did our forum, I am, I'm very fortunate. You know, people can call in, people can text me, and then we also get comments on social media. And I was really surprised. A lot of people who listened to our forum came away believing that Brandon Johnson was the best candidate overall. They liked his energy. They liked his positivity. They liked his, relatively speaking, his youth. And I was surprised by that. I don't know if uh, people text cranes or email cranes or how the how regular folks give you guys feedback. But I'm wondering if after your forum, there was any uh, feedback from the from the community about who they liked and who they didn't and who they thought did well and who they thought that didn't do well. Uh, I'm not aware of it, uh, Joan, but I, I agree with your overall analysis that uh, I think Mr. Johnson needs to be taken very, very seriously as a candidate. I said at the beginning that uh, there's at least four and maybe five. He's the, he's, he's the maybe five. Um, uh, there is clearly a segment of the population, and I don't, I don't totally disagree with them, that thinks that, uh, that uh, rich people and big corporations haven't paid their fair share. There is something to that. They haven't. Uh, the question is, is how do you get it out of them? And can you do it at a local level or do you need to do it at a national level? Uh, that's my, that's where I had to disagree. But there's no question that, uh, that uh, there's a lot of people who, who like that uh, uh, opinion. And I'm going to back somebody who clearly says it. He is young. He is energetic. Uh, and he's being backed out in the precincts. Always, politics, it always helps to have precinct workers and people who are going to carry your message by the same folks who elected uh, uh, Dale Alamera's uh, congresswoman uh, from uh, from a district that covers part of the northwest side of the city. Um, I don't think he should be underestimated. I think he's got a, a shot at making a runoff. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I'm talking with Greg Hines. He writes about politics for Crane's Chicago Business. We're talking about the Chicago mayoral race, and we are going to continue this discussion right after a break. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Greg Hines writes about politics for Crane's Chicago business, and we have been talking about the race to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Uh, Greg, would you agree with me that right now, at this moment in time, that Lori, Chewy, Paul Vallis, Brandon Johnson, and Willie Wilson are the top five? Uh, almost without doubt. Um uh, Sophia King, uh, the all-woman from the uh, Fourth Ward, has, is on TV, but uh, she doesn't have a lot of muscle. She's not very well known, and uh, much as some people would prefer otherwise, I don't think she's in it. So, yeah, that's it's those five that uh, are going to are going to be the field. I agree. Yeah, I, I think so too, and I do think that in the future we we're going to hear more from Sophia King because I think uh, she's got a lot to offer, and I think she's. Uh, I think she's really smart, and I think she's really um, 
I know she's in her early 50s, but I still think she has a, a great future in politics. No, I uh, agree with you. I think we're, I think we're going to hear more from uh, Jamal Green, too. Uh, oh, yeah. He's, he's been really interesting. Uh, he's come up with some uh, kind of offbeat ideas that uh, other candidates have picked up. Uh, that's usually a sign you're on the right course when other candidates steal your stuff. Uh, <laughs> he got in that Will, he got in Willie Wilson's face pretty good. He, one of the debates that made Willie kind of growled about, I'm not going to take no no lessons from no kid. Um, yeah. He's a, he, he has a future, too. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Willie Wilson's candidacy? I mean, he definitely has a built-in constituency, but it's never been enough to actually get him elected. Why spend uh, the money? Is it just that, you know, he's wealthy and can do it and figures what the heck? I'm, I've always puzzled I by I this. I don't, I, don't claim to, I don't claim to know Willie very well, but I think you're probably, uh, 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 Mr. Wilson or Dr. Wilson, I think you're probably right that uh, he... He, he, hey, it's a free country. Uh, if you think you have something to offer, uh, belly up to the bar and run. And he's got the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, God bless him. He's he's he's, he's given away a lot of money uh, to a lot of people. Uh, there aren't very many folks who can say that. Um, uh, whether Chicago is looking for a uh, very conservative uh, guy, however, is is. Uh, is is questionable. Uh, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's, a, he's a Donald Trump fan. Uh, he uh, uh, doubled down on his remark at one of the debates that uh, that we need to take. Not only do we need to take the handcuffs off police, but we need to send them out and they can chase down the bad guys like rabbits. Yeah, yeah that didn't, uh, that didn't go over very well. So I think Willie shot himself in the foot on that one. Um, uh, so, uh, so yeah, he's in the he's in the five, but I'm not sure he's he's going to make it. He could. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Um, I think the people that are the, the three people that conventional wisdom now says are really worth watching are, are Laurie Lightfoot and Chuy Garcia and uh, Paul Vallis. Uh, uh, Lightfoot is the incumbent. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule her out, but she's just not been able to get out of this uh, hole. She's dug herself on crime. Uh, she keeps trying to explain it away, uh, and it doesn't work. I mean, people are scared, and I'm sorry, you can't tell people, oh, you have no reason to be scared. Things are getting better. Mm-hmm. They are. And, they can t- and, you know, she's, she's good event. She's, she's, the, she's there. Um, Congressman Garcia has run a uh, kind of a quiet campaign. Um, Too quiet, Greg? All the progressives. Hmm? Too quiet. I mean, I know everybody puts him out as a front runner, but he is. He is so soft-spoken, and he is so, uh, so very quiet that I, I wonder if he's going to have enough energy to make it into that into that runoff. I, I don't know. I'm very. I've, I do not know him very well, and I know lots of people who do know him really, really, really like him. And maybe I've just gotten too used to politicians kind of being passionate and bombastic and hyperbolic. Um, but he is seeming seemingly none of those things. I would agree with that, Joan. Um, of, of all the candidates, you just wanted to sit down and have a cup of coffee or a beer with any of them. Um, he'd, be the, he'd be the easiest one to talk to. Uh, Chewy is genuinely a nice fellow. Um, he is, uh, I think his heart is in the right spot. He's not too extremely ideologically. Um, uh, even though he had support from, uh, from, from, uh, really progressive groups, uh, last time he ran this time, uh, some of them with Johnson and, and it's a little more split. Uh, 
But yeah, I've shared your perception. His energy level has been a little low. Um, I think that may be in part uh, because uh, he's a member of Congress. And as we all know, the House is very narrowly split right now. So he's got to be there. They had those, those roll calls where, you know, if you're missing mm-hmm. the Democrat, strange stuff could happen. So he's been like red, uh, red, red eye flying uh, back and forth, uh, you know, in the middle of the night to get here for campaign events and it goes back to Washington. I wouldn't want to do that if I was 25. And Chewie's <laughs> not 25 anymore. That yeah. would tire me out. And maybe that explains part of it. He got a lot of grief from um, some groups for the fact that there was one mayoral forum. I think it might have been TTWs that he missed so that he could be in the audience for the State of a Union, the State of the Union address. I don't fault him for that. I mean, it's not like it, if maybe if it was the only mayoral forum that was going to take place on the floor. Every big shot in Washington is there. You get a chance to talk to people and push your stuff or whatever. I agree with you. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't think that that was um, deeply insulting um, to to anybody to anybody involved. Um, and one thing, tell me if you've observed this too. Uh, as she is campaigning, certainly in these forums, Lori Lightfoot is on the attack with whoever she perceives as her um, most serious challenger at that point. But uh, in looking at her ads and some other things, I think she's also trying to bring back the Lori Lightfoot that campaigned last time around. Lori Lightfoot that seemed to be more positive. You know, Lori Lightfoot who would go to a parade and dance. Lori Lightfoot who, you know, could joke around. I just got back. I went to see my daughter in L.A. And when I was waiting for my luggage, all of a sudden this announcement comes on. You know, hi, I'm Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and we want to welcome you to Chicago, which is like the greatest city in the world. And I'm looking around, and I'm going, I don't remember ever hearing that ever before. I mean, it's, I think on the one hand, she's attacking the candidates, but on the other hand, I think she's trying to remind people, hey, remember me? I used to be, like, full of positivity and fun. Remember that? Do you think I'm crazy, uh, or is this or is this going out? Well, she may, she may, she may be trying to do that at some level. If she is, I don't think she's very successful at it. Instead, she's coming across as angry, uh, which, which you know. Well, I think that's what this is designed to to tr- kind of refute. I think that you know, probably when she sat down for election, maybe somebody said, "Look, this is the this is the take on you. You're angry. You can't get along with everybody. You got to bring back fun, Lori." And you know, because I've seen her at like parades and other things where she's. It was a debate last night on the. On the channel 32, 32, the Fox outlet here. Yeah, well, she still brings angry, angry Lori to the debates. (laughs) And and Mike, you know where I'm going here. Mike Flannery, who was moderating it and asking questions, is a nice guy. He's mainstream. Uh, But he he was asking her some some very legitimate questions about whether Chicago public schools really are as good as as the mayor keeps saying they are, both with the graduation rates or whatever, given uh, given how poor, how poor the kids do on tests, uh, given the extremely high uh, truancy rate, et cetera, et cetera. And he asked her a question, and she and she just turned it right around and says, "How dare you? You're giving me fox speak." That's that's exactly the kind of good question. Why are you jumping on our hardworking children? There yeah, and she accused him of of hard. calling the mean? Chicago public school students. You're calling them stupid, and he was like, "No, I'm not." Yeah. No, he wasn't. It was way out, of, way, way out of bounds. I thought um, we should probably talk about Paul Wallace a little bit. Yes, uh, who we just heard from on this station. And uh, yeah, he's had a he's had a really bumpy week. 
Uh, it started with uh, with tape of him uh, uh, seeming to say that uh, he's he's uh, he's uh, against abortion rights. Uh, he 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 he's explained that all oh, that's my personal feeling, but but my public position, I'm going to defend abortion to death, abortion rights to death, and that's why Planned Parenthood is for me. Okay, uh, then there's a story on uh, the WTTW broke about uh, where does he really live here or in the south suburbs. Um, he's had an explanation for that. He says, well, I live in Chicago. I make the residency requirements but because because uh, I have an elderly mother and my wife has the two elderly parents. She stays out there so she can take care of them. Okay. Uh, and then there's a story that I broke uh, along with my colleague, uh, uh, Justin Lawrence, that uh, he appears to be benefiting from a dark money pack uh, that has some very close connections to the guy who happens to be his media advisor. Uh, hello, uh, kind of dirty Washington politics times of Chicago. Uh, so Paul, after kind of skating uh, the last couple, three months, uh, had risen pretty high in the polls, at least some of them. Uh, but uh, as, it, as tends to happen when you leave the polls, everybody starts going after you. And he's had a bumpy, a bumpy few days. Yeah, and I know that you actually have a job that that you do, but uh, we talked to Paul about about many of those things. Uh, he he understands. Hey, you know what? You're the front runner. Everybody's going to come after you, and that's just uh, that's that shouldn't be surprising to anybody. It shouldn't be surprising to him, and uh, it certainly isn't uh, surprising to you or me. And I think that kind of thing's going to continue. Greg, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, take care of yourself. Absolutely. Talk again. Yes, we will. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. A lot of the guests uh, who I have on this radio show are people who uh, really have a lot to offer, that they're, they know really a lot of information that my listeners and both I need to hear. And um, I generally book them by I'm kind of like one of those yippy little dogs uh, where I just kind of keep nipping away at them. What do you want to go on the radio? You want to go on the radio? You want to go on the radio? When are you going to go on the radio with me? And sooner or later, I break them down. One of the people who I have just warned to a nub that way is Ed Yonka from the ACLU. And um, so I was really pleased when uh, Ed reached out to me and he said, hey, I got something to talk about. Do you think we could go on the radio? And I was like, what? Of course. <laughs> You're welcome. And uh, I am so thrilled to have Ed Yonka here. And it's not because I harassed him until he just gave up the will to live. Ed, welcome back. Hey, Joan, how are you? And thank you for thank you for making time. I am always grateful for the opportunity to come on with you. Well, I appreciate that. And today, Ed Yonka has also brought a guest. Jason Vincent of Giant Restaurant is here. Jason, welcome to our radio show. How are you? Hey, good. How are you, Joan? So far, so great. So, Ed, what what is it that you and Jason want to tell us? I wanted to tell you about something that I think is really um 
really special and something that we're incredibly proud of at the ACLU. Uh, But Jason and a number of chefs uh, from the Chicago area, a number of award-winning chefs, I should add. Oh, yeah, it's an all-star lineup. I see Mindy Siegel there. Yes, yes, are sponsoring, really sort of helping us by sponsoring um, a chef's dinner on Monday, February 20th, that's President's Day, so you could have the day off and then go eat a really incredible meal um, at Chef's Cocktail Bar. And and all of the proceeds from the event go to support the ACLU. And I should say that our connection to Jason is because Jason is a board member of the ACLU of Illinois Next Generation Society, which is sort of our young leaders group. And, and you know, we did this before the pandemic. We are really thrilled to be back doing it. And, of course, um, you know, you, you know in Chicago and you know with this group of people, you're going to get just an incredible meal. And so we are really looking forward to this. Jason, it seems like an unexpected connection for a chef, a working successful chef, to also be interested in politics enough to join uh, the ACLU Next Generation Board. Talk to me about what motivated you to do that. Um, wow, that's a big question. Um, you know, there's, there's always been... Uh, you have to kind of triage your life. You know what I mean? It can't all be food and restaurants and things like that. You have to, you have to be able to pay attention to other stuff. And, and sometimes that other stuff is just more important than the restaurant or more important than a career. And, um, you know, civil liberties, I, I think fall in that category for me, they do anyway. And, and, um, you know, we happen to have this space and we have, uh, you know, maybe the worst superpower ever, which is being able to cook. Um, <laughs> but you know, if we can, if we can use it for some good and raise some money, which we have in the past, and we plan on uh, keeping doing, uh, you know, why not? I mean, it's uh, it's 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 great. It makes us feel good. So when your uh, board gets together. Uh, do you talk about um, some of the issues that the ACLU is involved in at that point? I know board members also have a responsibility to come up with ideas to help fund an organization, having been on many boards myself, that that's a big part of it. But what the organization does also, it would seem to me to be of interest to you and your other board members. It is, and they're they're um, young, wonderful people who are, you know, community minded, and you know, everybody kind of has their own set of skills. They they jump in when they can. There's a lot of lawyers, you know what I mean. So I get to learn uh, a lot of stuff about that. You know, I'm I'm, I'm subscribing to podcasts about lawyers. You know, uh, uh, Joyce Vance and, and uh, sisters in law. Sisters in law is great. Barbara yeah. Is Joyce great. Vance, Jill Wine Banks, and um I have just blanked on the other woman who's who's a part of it, but that's great. I've I've listened Barbara, to that one too. Barbara McQuaid. Yes. Barbara McQuaid, yes. Yeah. They're they're just sharp beyond sharp and they they tell it like it is and they you know, they don't always tell you the news that you want to hear, like you, you know, this guy's gonna get off because of mm-hmm. or whatever. And I think when you're 
you know, I'm, I'm at the point now where I have like 75 employees and they, you know, having information about stuff like that, about the law and their rights and things like that really, um, it, it, it helps me, like it helps me talk to them. I mean, half of them are half, are half my age. So letting them know what the world is and, and my two daughters and being able to communicate with them, uh, from a point of knowledge instead of a point of, um, you know, uh, blank optimism, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it gives me concrete, uh, foundation to have concrete conversations with them. And Speaking of, uh, impressive women, Ed, there are some pretty impressive women with the ACLU who are going to be speaking at this event. Talk about, uh, Kadeen and Colleen and Amari. So, uh, yes, um, Colleen uh, Connell is our executive director, and the the amazing thing is is that uh, and has been our executive director since 2001. The amazing thing is is that for uh, a number of years before that, Colleen was the director of our Women's Rights Project, and you know she was really the person back in the bad old days in Illinois who blocked bad abortion laws before they could even go into effect. Uh, Amory uh, Clafetta is our uh, Women's and Reproductive Rights Project Director. Um, she is, uh, you know, is sort of taken over the reins from Colleen uh, in terms of, you know, working on um, issues related to reproductive rights in Illinois. She was a key mover in terms of both passing the Reproductive Health Act when it was passed, as well as uh, in terms of, um, you know, uh, ending the parental notice bill. And then Kadeem Bennett is our is our uh, uh, advocacy director and lobbyist in, in um, Springfield. And as I always say about my friend Kadeem, she is literally just a force of nature. I mean, uh, you know, she she will uh, there is there is no vote she won't chase. There is nobody she won't run down. There's no one she won't talk to and ask and inform and spend time with um, if it can get us to a yes to get, you know, more civil rights and civil liberties protections on a whole range of things in our state. And, and goodness knows, uh, you know, as we see what's happening around the country, that's work we really need to be doing right now because, uh, you know, if, if we, if, you know, number one, when we put protections in place in Illinois, we give a place for people to come to, but also we serve as a model for other states when we move forward, when we move out of this period with this particular Supreme Court, with, you know, some of the, the, the members of Congress we have, this is the this is the model. This is the engine that can drive uh, what other people do in states to put in civil rights and civil liberties protections. Ed, I know that there are like the people who work here work for the ACLU of Illinois and there are various ACLUs and different states. Is there also um, a tier where it is where they just take a national perspective? The reason I'm asking is, of course, we're expecting this Trump judge in Texas to rule very soon on whether or not abortion pills. Uh, uh, Somehow I don't understand why this judge in Texas has the ability to bring this 
uh, ability to get these abortion pills down nationwide, but apparently that's the case. So would that be the ACLU of Texas, or would uh, some of the Illinois people get involved in that, or is there a national tier? Because I know the ACLU is, is, this is one of the cases that you guys are really working on. Yeah, I'm really watching. Um, So the short answer is sort of all of the above. Joan, you you won't be surprised when I say that. So we do have a national office in New York um, that works on, as well as in D.C., that works on the national level and, 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 you know, is obviously watching this particular development very, very closely. Um, and, And in addition to which, you know, the affiliates out in all the 50 states uh, are are looking at what is the impact of this going to be if the judge, as many people expect, um, you know, orders the FDA to withdraw um, to withdraw the, the the approval of abortion medication. You know, what does that look like for us uh, in Illinois? What will we tell providers and and pharmacists and others? Uh, here in this state, you know, that's something that our colleagues in every state is watching. Um, and so it is a it is a uh, you know, it, it it is literally sort of the work that we all do, uh, both individually in our states and collectively together. And I and I would just add a word, Joan, that, you know, one of the things you said about not understanding how this judge gets this case in order to do this, that one of the elements of this is, of course, um, that the, the the people who have brought this case and challenged and are seeking to do this are, are actually seeking to reverse the approval of a drug that has been on the market and been available for more than 20 years and been proven to be safe. And somehow uh, the challenge is now the suggestion that the, that the, me- that the medication isn't safe. And so, you know, given the already um, – you know, the constrictions and restrictions around reproductive health care and access to reproductive health care. This is even more frightening. Uh-huh. It is. It is. And it's um, it's a battle that's that's far from over. Um, guys, let's take a break. I'm talking to Ed Yanka, our favorite representative of the ACLU of Illinois and Jason Vincent from the restaurant giant. We're going to be back with both these guys right after a quick break. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. People who listen to this radio station tend, for the most part, to be pretty progressive in their politics and pretty respectful and appreciative of the American Civil Liberties Union because they take on the tough issues and fight in a way that those of us that don't have their access or experience could possibly do to fight some of these things like a Texas judge trying to take away the abortion pill for every single person in the United States. Um, you can become a member of the ACLU and sometimes not really very often they do fundraising events. They are doing a celebrity chef benefit dinner Monday, February 20th. 
It is uh, going to be in Chicago on Western Avenue at Chef's Special Cocktail Bar. There is a 5 o'clock cocktail hour, a 6 p.m. dinner. Um, and they have a lot of local celebrity chefs contributing to this. One of their celebrity chefs also happens to be an ACLU board member. Jason Vincent uh, from the restaurant Giant is going to be participating in this event along with Ed Yanka. He is here right now to talk to us about it. Jason, I didn't give you any chance to talk about Giant. Tell me um, where your place is and what kind of food you serve. It's a it's a tough question to answer, and I've tried to I tried to boil it down to an elevator pitch for <laughs> seven years. We just uh, so it's in Logan Square, and you know we um, not to be too hippy dippy about it, but we just kind of let the ingredients tell us what they want to be type of thing. Uh, so we don't we don't really have a, a style or a you know a, a, a culture, you know, anything like that. It's very, for lack of a better word, uh, global or, you know, fusion or uh, stuff like that. We have homemade pastas. Uh, we make them by hand every day. Uh, we have onion rings. And then we have a lot of vegetables that, I'll be honest, we treat in very weird ways, like uh, <laughs> fish sauce caramel or um, eggplant with sweet and sour sauce. I mean, mm. we just, uh, yeah, we just, we just try and make it delicious. Honestly. What are you going to be contributing to the, uh, to the, to the dinner on the 20th? What, what appetizer or entree, what are you bringing? So the way we're doing the dinner is we have six, potentially seven chefs who are each doing a course. So we have oh. a little cocktail hour, and Ricky Perez from Logan Square Oyster Socials is going to do these oyster preparations for us, and then he's also going to do a course. Um, and then uh, we're just going to kind of go. I know Zach from Galit uh, in Lakeview is doing his famous hummus, which is lighter than air. I can't even. I don't have no. I, I hope he makes it there because I want to <laughs> see what he does. Uh, and then we have Eric. Williams from Virtue Restaurant is doing this goat cheese and beef thing. And we're just going to kind of serve everything family style. By the time we get to us, uh, my partner at Chef Special, uh, Aaron, is going to do a beef cheek uh, uh, dish out of the walks that we have at Chef Special. So we're kind of blistered beef cheeks. And then I'm going to try and follow it up. I, I, I can't tell you what I'm exactly going to make yet because I don't know. We got to go talk to some farmers, and we got to go talk to some people and see what they have, because uh, that's just kind of how we like to do it. Um, but I'm thinking pork, potentially fried chicken, something like that. <sighs> well, Ed Yanka, I'm starving now. Yeah, do you get the impression? So, first of all, do you get the impression that there are people that are way more talented than us? <laughs> Uh, I <laughs> oh, I've, I've always known that. You. Yeah, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, let me just say to folks who are listening, um, you can go to our website at aclu-il.org. Look in our events section. There are still, I was told this afternoon, there are a couple of tickets left for this. And if, if what Jason just described tickles your fancy and and it's something you'd like to do we we'd love to have you come and join us it, it's it's a really fun kind of collegial night to just sit around with people who you know share your values have some really really good food uh and some really great conversation so um 
uh, if you if you are so inclined, I, we'd love to have you with us, and uh, uh, it'd be great to see you. And it is an organization that is really worth supporting. I mean, you really do fight the good fight, uh, Ed, and uh, I really admire the work that you do. And it, you know, I mean, it takes it takes fundraising. It takes people who. Uh, join and become members to keep that work going. But as you know, Joan, uh, Joan, it also takes people being involved, whether it's somebody like Jason, you know, joining our Next Gen Society board, people joining that that society, people who take action when we ask them to reach out to Springfield that really makes a difference when we're trying to pass legislation. You know, you know, we've talked about this recently, you know, people going to their local school board and local uh, uh, library board meetings and making sure that books and materials aren't banned. You know, I, I like to think of this as, as literally a, a, a place and a time and a moment when everybody has a role, small, large, uh, whatever. And we, we all need to play that part because there are people, as you know, who want to take away uh, our basic freedoms. And the only way we're ever going to risk it or resist it is if we all stick together. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to repeat what Ed said a few moments ago. If you would like to get tickets to this event or if you want to find out other ways that you can support the ACLU of Illinois, go to aclu-il.org, and they have an events tab at the top of the page that will uh, tell you more about this event and give you a link to be able to uh, purchase tickets. Uh, Jason, thank you for being here. Ed, it is always a pleasure. Makes me realize there's a couple of issues I need to reach out to you about and we need to get some stuff on the books. Um, it is Friday though, so Ed, I will let you have your weekend and I will be emailing you Monday morning. Look for it, okay? You got it and, and you know I will always say yes. <laughs> Yes. Ed Yanka is the only person that I know, like me, who doesn't sleep at night. You can send him an email, I swear to you, at two in the morning and you will get a response. Don't tell people this. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, Jason Vincent, Ed Yanka from the ACLU. uh, Thank you for being here. That's going to do it uh, for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you again Monday uh, after Santita starts our day at 6 in the morning. I will see you after that. Next week, we have a lot more of the candidates who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago joining us. Many of them are going to be joining us for an hour. So when that happens, I'm going to open up the phone line so you can call in directly, talk to them with your questions. Huh. Okay. See you Monday for another exciting week. Until then, have a great weekend. Try to find something that brings you joy this weekend. And stay safe, my friends. Good night.